The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio with your host, Ann Gelsheimer. We are entering higher levels of consciousness with both old and new spiritual technologies to help us be the people we've always dreamed of being. We can make the choice to evolve in consciousness and become the change the world needs today. Now, here is Ann Gelsheimer. Hello, and welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio. This is your host, Ann Gelsheimer, and this is going to be another paradigm-shifting interview. As I was preparing for my interview with Paula Harris last week, I came across a very interesting book by the name of Rachel's Eyes that Paula had profiled on her website. This book, which was written by Helen Luttrell and Jean Bilodeau and released in 2005, reads like a science fiction novel, but it is actually intended to be the true account of getting to know a young woman in the 1970s who was a human ET hybrid. This young woman's name was Rachel, and she had enrolled in college as part of the highly classified Humanization Project, a kind of genetic social experiment to determine if such hybrid persons could integrate into mainstream human society. The the book is based on the memories and experiences of Helen Luttrell, who is my wonderful guest today. Helen's daughter, Marissa, was visually impaired and had moved into her own apartment while attending college. Her new roommate, Rachel, was a pleasant but unusual-looking girl who constantly wore wraparound sunglasses, long-sleeved jumpsuits, and a scarf over her hair. The two became friends even as unlikely events unfolded that included Helen, an army colonel from the Four Corners military base, visits from men in black, my lab teams, telepathy, and so much more. According to Dr. Richard Boylan, who wrote the preface to Rachel's Eyes and is the director of the Star Kids Project, this book is one of the most arresting books he has ever read in the UFO field, and he considers it a must-read for anyone who wants to be informed about the amazing developments behind the scenes. He talks about the saga of a government interaction with the Intergalactic Council and decades of quietly facilitating curious star visitors walking among us virtually undetected. Now, Helen also operates a medical transcription business. She serves as a freelance editor and consultant for a major medical publisher, and she has authored six medical terminology books. I had a chance to speak at some length with Helen prior to this interview, and I found her to be a lovely, genuine, compassionate human being, just a delight to get to know. So, Helen, welcome to Conscious Evolution Radio, and thanks so much for taking the time to be here as a guest. Thank you, Anne, for inviting me on your program. It's it's really a privilege to be here today. 
Well, I, I know the listeners will want us to jump right into the story because they may not have actually even heard of your book. I hadn't uh, until I came across Paula's website. So let's let's start. What what happened? Um, and 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 this is a many layered uh, story. I know that we're going to actually have two interviews to cover all the layers. But let's start with the events um, to do with your daughter and college and meeting up with Rachel. Okay. Um, well, my daughter, as you said before, was visually impaired. Actually, she had been uh, for most of her high school years, um, but she managed to get through high school with the aid of uh, having all her textbooks read on tape, and then she would play them back and, and get what she needed out, out of the books. And she also had tutors. But anyway, she um, graduated from high school and was ready to enter junior college. And so she um, found an apartment that she could sort of afford, not really. She actually needed a roommate to help her with the uh, expenses, the utilities and the rent itself, and also someone to help her with the activities of daily living, like picking out her clothes and and uh, things like that. And so she had asked in um, a guidance uh, counselor uh, to help her find someone who might fit the bill. And she needed someone as soon as possible because the bills were starting to pile up and, and she just didn't have the money that she needed. So within a day or two of her request at this office at the college, um, a man in military uniform, the colonel, showed up with his uh, so-called daughter, who was Rachel, and they were looking for someone like Marissa, who wouldn't be too critical of Rachel's appearance or um, the way that she needed to eat or drink or anything like that. So um, the uh, counselor called Marissa in, and the girls, two girls just hit it off right away, and uh, so they all went over to look at the apartment to make sure that it was what, what Rachel was going to want, too, and, and she just fell in love with it, and, and so the deal was struck that she would move in right away, and um, they, they seemed to get along very well. So it all started very normally. Where did it go from there? Well, it it went along all right, except that my daughter was telling me about the strange outfits, for one thing, that uh, Rachel was picking out for her to wear. I mean, her, her classmates in school would say, well, why did you, who picked out your outfit today? We know you can't see, but we know you have someone there to help you. Uh, what, your shirt and uh, skirt are, are not matching here at all. And and so she was telling me things like that and also the fact that uh, Rachel was unable to eat regular food at all or to drink uh, regular water or, or soda or milk, uh, nothing like that. She had her, her food delivered outside the apartment door um, whenever she was just about to run out and the food consisted of sort of like spinach uh, that had been warmed over two or three times, my daughter said, because she could see a little bit at times, just enough to see that 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 food didn't look very appetizing. 
And then also, the the water came um, delivered in big jugs, like five-gallon jugs. And that was the only thing that she could drink, that and that food, that awful-looking food. And so I was really beginning to wonder what kind of a person this was that would be subsisting on food and, and drink like this. And you mentioned in the book, too, there was um, really no information on the packages or on the bottles, but a very interesting little uh, symbol or insignia. Yes, yes. It didn't say frozen spinach or spring water or anything like that. There was a triangle with three lines through it at the bottom, in the bottom third. And each, each little package of food and, and each jug of, of liquid had that triangle on it. With the lines through it. And I remember you said that uh, Rachel at one point had uh, told Marissa that, uh, no, she couldn't try the food because it would actually make her sick. Yes, yes. Because my daughter being sort of adventurous, even though she did have a disability, she was still, you know, she wanted to know about everything. And uh, so... I guess Marissa, I mean, uh, Rachel was able to convince her enough. <laughs> not to try really, it. <laughs> don't try this. This is not good, and I can't eat any of your food either. Um, so that was another thing that Marissa had brought to my attention, that uh, something was out of the ordinary here. This didn't seem to be uh, just the run-of-the-mill college student. Now I remember you also mentioned that there were there was a quite a, a unique uh, sound to her voice, and her knowledge of sort of music and culture that would be of interest to a young woman at that time was literally non-existent. That's true. Um, it, there was just no fund of knowledge, which my daughter also find found really really strange. She didn't know uh, the the latest music groups or the latest songs or or just anything and she had never been on a date or uh, gone to the movies it, she was just really lacking in a lot of things and and then her voice also was very unusual it was um, very automatic sounding i guess would be a way to sound or robotic sounding uh it had no inflection and she didn't use any uh, contractions like won't or don't. She would say uh, would not or do not. And then uh, each word was very distinct. It, it sounded like this. I cannot see what you want me to do. It would sound Inter- like that. Wow, wow, interesting. So not not the fluent, not, 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 it's fluent. In terms of the words, but not the, um, the 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 production of the idea, the the and the, and the emotional content. Is there it sounds like there was no emotional content. There wasn't. There wasn't any. And this is probably one of the things that disturbed my daughter more than anything else, because there didn't seem to be any emotional content. Because almost everybody, um, whatever they're talking about does have some emotional uh, part to their voice. And uh, there was none there. There was none. Were there ever any other signs of an emotional response? I'm probably leaping ahead, but I'm just curious. 
Well, there was an emotional response, but it wasn't verbal. Are you talking about when Rachel left? Um, well, actually, I was just thinking. I was just thinking about um, the, you know reading this book. How she uh, did seem to long for friends. She longed for family. There, there was seemed. Maybe I'm inferring that, but I, that's what I picked up from reading the book. No, um, I, I think she really did want a family, although I'm not exactly sure that she knew exactly what a family was. Um, right. Because when she had brought, been uh, rescued by the colonel and, and continued her upbringing on the base for however long it was, probably two years or something like that, I'm not really sure, but uh, she had the nurses and uh, the scientists that were there, and, and uh, I think there were guards and, and people that played a part in her uh, upbringing and, and were around her every day, but yet it wasn't a family. Right. It, these these were just, professionals stepping in to, to help out. Right, they and were just doing a job, actually. So I'm sorry, I did jump ahead like that because it's just so interesting to me, the, the whole story. But let me back up. And so you were explaining the differences that had come to Marissa's attention about Rachel and that she'd shared with you. What happened next to help reveal what was actually going on? That would probably have been um, my face-to-face meeting with Rachel, I believe. Okay, tell us about that. Okay, well, I I had heard about all of these strange things happening, and I had gone to see, to visit my daughter one day after work, which was probably about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, something like that, or 5. Anyway, I was getting ready to leave, and I was sort of disappointed because I had really hoped that I would get to meet Rachel, and she wasn't there. Um, she was across the street, actually, in the college, because the girls lived just across the street in an apartment complex. So I was, I had to get, I had to get on the road and get home, and so I'm standing in the doorway there saying goodbye to Marissa, and um, just as I was about to really leave, uh, we heard footsteps coming up the stairs, uh, because they lived on the second story, and, and uh, Marissa said, uh, wait a minute, I think that, that sounds like Rachel. So just wait a minute here. So I did, and, and in fact, it was Rachel coming up the stairs, and apparently she had forgotten a, a book or some homework or something that she needed um, for her next class. And, and so she sort of rushed through the doorway between us and didn't say much of anything. And as she came back out, she she tripped, I believe, and she caught her foot on something, uh, whether it was the carpet, it was an old carpet on the floor, and it could have, she could have caught her toe on it. Whatever uh, happened with her, I could see that she was going to fall forward. And I could also see that she wasn't reaching out with her hands uh, to catch anything. And there were some things she could have caught, some chairs and things she could have caught hold of, but she didn't make any effort. She just hung on to her books that she had in her arms, and she was just starting to fall straight forward, which I thought was really odd because uh, anyone I knew, if they were going to fall, they'd drop whatever they got and and, uh, grab onto something to save themselves. 
Sure, it's an instinct, yeah. It is. Um, but she didn't do this, so I reached out and uh, grabbed her arm as she was just about to go down and um, stood her back up. And as I took a hold of her arm, her jumpsuit sleeve slipped up, and I found myself holding on to her arm, which was, I don't know, I guess it was flesh, but it felt really cool, which was unusual, too, because it was a really, really hot day there in Sacramento, and uh, just really hot in the late afternoon. And her arm felt really cool and spongy, not like regular flesh should feel on your arm. It felt uh, the texture of mushrooms, actually. Mm. And it was sort of a yellowish-green color, too. But that wasn't even the uh, most uh, interesting part of the catch. Uh, That was when I stood her up, and we were just about nose-to-nose at that point. And her um, dark sunglasses had slipped down on her face so that I was looking directly into her eyes. And what I saw was uh, something I had never seen before. Her eyes were big and slanted around on the side of her face. And the pupils were vertical. The rest of the eye was a light green, like avocados. And I know I'm talking about how she reminded me of vegetables here, but but it's just the way the colors were. Oh, yeah, uh, sure. Hmm? Yeah, no, that's that, that's a good... It helped me imagine what, what you saw when you used the, the term, the reference to avocados. <laughs> yes, but that was just how it, it looked, the inside of avocados, of course. But um, for just a moment, as we're looking eye to eye, I am scared right out of my wits. And then, after a few seconds, not very many, uh, we were kind of locked in, in our gaze there, and then I realized that she was showing fear in her eyes because she realized that I knew she was not uh, an ordinary human being. And right. so, after that... Um, we, we finally stopped looking in each other's eyes, and she went on uh, with her books or whatever it was to her class. And um, it, it was shortly after that that she apparently had told her father, the colonel, uh, what had happened that day, and that she knew that I had realized she wasn't a human or not entirely human. And so, uh, so, so Hel- Helen, what we'll do, I think we'll take a break here. It's a good point. Okay. But when we come back, uh, let's talk about what happened with the Colonel and Marissa and yourself now that uh, Rachel realizes she's been seen for what she is. Right. That would be fine. Okay. <laughs> Great. So this is Ann Gelsheimer on Conscious Evolution Radio, and we'll be right back. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. The divine lives within every one of us. 
Some people just need help unlocking it. Once you understand your own shadow self, you can begin to take steps to say goodbye to remorse, guilt, and shame. Then, own up to living your life with great delight. Listen for Beyond Religion, Your Life is Waiting with host Jim Stacy. For 15 years, Jim has studied the Aramaic language, the non-religious language of Yeshua. And through that language, you can learn how to choose the life you want to live and live above smallness and the victim. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on 7th Wave. Could you be the next legendary leader? That question hinges on your courage and willingness to change. Join Maria Danley every week for Legendary Leaders, answering the higher calling. Be inspired by stories and legend and listen to legendary guests along with live channeling to help you answer your higher calling and become the legendary leader you are destined to be. The world is waiting for you. Step up and join the wave. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be the change. The 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. You are tuned in to Conscious Evolution Radio, and we love to hear from you. Please send any questions or comments about the show via email to Conscious Evolution Radio at gmail.com. Again, that's Conscious Evolution Radio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. And welcome back to Conscious Evolution Radio. This is Ann Gelsheimer, and my guest today is Helen Luttrell and her life experiences meeting a young woman who was a human ET hybrid became the basis of her book, uh, Rachel's Eyes. So Helen was just telling me about the first time that she actually looked into Rachel's eyes and saw how unusual she was. And the and so Helen, tell us what happened next. Yes. Um, well, I'm, I'm very sure that Rachel must have spoken to her father about that uh, incident where <clears throat> I... She was going to fall, and I'd caught her, and I realized that she was not entirely human. So um, he had already talked to my daughter um, something about uh, Rachel's uh, origination. And so the colonel thought it was time for, to get me in and, and tell me about it, because most people would have pulled their daughter out of a situation with a roommate that wasn't entirely from here. But I didn't because they got along so well. I thought, well, I don't know really what I thought. It was just that there was no reason to make any changes as far as I was concerned because they did get along and they needed each other too and they were getting to really like each other. So anyway, the colonel had my daughter set up a meeting one evening for the four of us, him, Rachel, and my daughter and me. And so I showed up at the time, 7 or 7.30, and we sat in the living room, um, and and he started to tell me uh, some of his background and how he had acquired Rachel. And and he was talking along for maybe five or ten minutes, normal conversation, and then all of a sudden it was... A whole, I realized it was a whole lot later, and it was starting to get dark outside. And so I realized 
some time must have gone by because we started at about 7 or 7.30. And uh, so I asked him, well, did I fall asleep or, or what happened? And he said, no, you did not fall asleep. I, I started to tell you about Rachel's background and a little bit about mine. And he said, I knew it was going to take so long that we didn't have the time to spend this evening. And so he, he said, I realized um, I checked you out and, and you can send and receive uh, telepathically. And so he said, I decided to just tell you all of this information telepathically is so much quicker and easier, and um, it, it was just the way that I decided to go with it. And so that was how I discovered about Rachel's uh, landing there at the base at Four Corners and the colonel agreeing to raise her as a, a human being. And it was a strange, strange evening, and it was a strange way to receive that much information, too. I realized that. Oh, I remember you said it was like this massive download of all this information. So I know we probably can't go through all of it, but maybe you could um, share about uh, the crash of the vehicle and him finding her and what led up to him actually adopting her. Okay, Um well, this happened at Four Corners, and it was a secret, mostly underground base um, in Nevada. It's close to Area 51 and Groom Lake and, and that area, but it is, as far as I know, it was never connected with them physically or otherwise. I think it was its own entity. But this one evening, um, there was a crash, and there were apparently uh, the three occupants in, in the craft, uh, the other two, apparently the one who was piloting and, and someone else, uh, were killed. But the colonel saw some movement yet in the outside portion of, of the crash. And so he went in and, and pulled this person out, and it turned out to be Rachel. And she had a cut on her arm, and she was just kind of pretty well shook up, actually. But she had a, a big gash on her arm, which she had already started to heal. If she had a certain way of of healing um, wounds that weren't fatal, fatal wounds. But um, anyway, he, he realized that she was going to survive, and so he took her back to the headquarters there at... Um, four corners right. in the medical department, which was very small. It was <laughs> two or three nurses, and that was about it. And um, they bandaged her up and cleaned her up and everything. And that was um, pretty much the beginning of it. The next day, uh, he had to, because uh, this happened later in the day, and he, the next day he contacted his higher-ups, and they made such a strange request of him. It's as if they knew in advance what was happening and what he was going to ask. So he had asked if he could keep her there for a while, at least till she got sort of back on her feet, because there were crafts going back and forth from Four Corners to the place that they were coming from. And, and, and sorry, Helen, did, did he mention where that was? Yes, he did. And I'm trying to... To get it, it's, 
Was it Zeta Reticuli? Yeah, yes, that was it, Zeta Reticuli. And so um, he got permission from his headquarters uh, to keep her, but there were strings attached to it, and he was supposed to adopt her and raise her as a human child. And he really didn't know about that. He hadn't had much to do with children, young children or teenagers in his life. But there was something different about her, and so he did agree to do that. But that sort of led him to a lot of complications, too, I think. It was hard for her to assimilate into uh, living with humans. Well, yes, and you mentioned that uh, one of the problems was she was purely telepathic and had to actually learn to speak, right? Yes, yes, she she didn't speak at all, and that was one thing that they had called in a speech uh, uh, therapist or pathologist or someone to teach her to speak, and that was quite a job. They never did get her so that she could show any emotion in her voice, no matter what she was reading. But at least she did learn to read, and she learned to speak. And she had a very high intellect, didn't she? She was able to absorb vast amounts of information. Oh, yes. And I could see how that would be if you were entirely telepathic all of your young life, or up to that point anyway. Just from the amount of information the colonel put into my mind, I I could see that if that was the only way you ever had communicated, you would just have a huge, huge amount of knowledge. Well, and how frustrating it would be to have to slow all of that down and learn to articulate word for word your your ideas. It must have, must have felt very limiting at times for her. I think it did. She seemed frustrated sometimes when she was uh, speaking because every word was so deliberate. And, you know, it, it just, you felt frustrated for her almost to, to hear her. Uh, and there was nothing you could do to have to just wait until she got the words out. Now, I just want to say to the listeners, it may sound very strange, this idea of telepathic communication, and you might wonder, but I've actually experienced it with certain people, particularly people who've had a lot of meditation, and this is my experience, a lot of meditation training, very advanced and um, I've heard stories about it. I've actually had moments of experiencing it with certain individuals who clearly read my thoughts and cracked up laughing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> me too. <laughs> so, like, oh, darn, you heard that. <laughs> We're just sitting there in silence. <laughs> <laughs> Very embarrassing. But anyways, I, I, I do understand. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not like telepathic like that, but I have had moments of experiencing it. And I do know individuals who are much, much more telepathic than I am. So it is a phenomenon that's out there. But can you imagine having that as your primary way of communicating and, you know, sending and receiving information, just how quick that would be and how the different levels of, of information that could be conveyed so quickly. I'm envious now as I'm talking. <laughs> I, I am too, uh, because I'm not telepathic with everyone, but with certain ones, certainly the ones that you mentioned that are uh, into advanced meditation. Uh, it's quite possible. I, I have done that frequently with them. 
And it's a little aside, but I loved what you uh, you did talk about that with your daughter Marissa, the the telepathic link between you and Marissa. Maybe you could just just briefly tell us about that now. Oh yes. Um, well, this was quite some time after uh, the incident with with uh, Rachel, but um, she. She would call, especially if she was, if she was having problems. She, she became an instructor for um, disadvantaged people. She taught them a lot of um, daily living skills. And, uh, but there were some that she just couldn't seem to, to get across successfully. And, and uh, apparently she would, she would send me thoughts on it and uh, how frustrated she was. And, and I would think... Well, could that be? I, she doesn't usually talk about that when we talk. And so some, one night in particular, it got really bad. I, I knew she was just fit to be tied. So I called her and I said, um, I got that message you sent me. And she said, yes, the one about I, I can't get this one idea across. And I said, yeah. And so I told her what the idea was, and <laughs> she almost broke into tears. So she, she was so glad that I had received it because she didn't want to call me and she thought she would be bothering me with it. But it wasn't bothering me and we came up with some sort of a solution. I don't think it worked too well, but it worked a little. It was some sort of a help to her. But we did that a lot, an awful lot. We would send each other messages um, telepathically. So the colonel had sized that up and, and quite accurately knew that you could receive, and he himself had been trained to do that. That was part of his job, wasn't it, in, yes, in, at it the was. base? Could right. you tell us a little bit about what his function was at Four Corners? Yes, he was in charge of the team, which they called the blue team, um, which was to recover crashed um, spacecraft. And it seemed that there were quite a few crashes. There were several recoveries of the occupants, and some of the craft landed safely, too. It was primarily the function of the uh, installation was to um, uh, foster um, a group of strange scientists from Zeta Reticulum and uh, with our scientists here. Ours didn't go there, but theirs came here, and they were teaching them advanced medical procedures and surgical procedures. And um, so anyway, he was in charge of this team that recovered the crashes. And it was a sad job, too, because sometimes they just couldn't, they couldn't save the occupants. There, was, there were more crashes than there could be. And I've discovered since that possibly some of the reason for all of that cra- of the crashes was the radar installation that they had there that interfered with the uh, uh, steering situation for the craft. Oh, and it, I see. It, yeah, it, it sort of zeroed it out, and the craft didn't know where they were, or it was it was a complete mess for the navigation system for a while until they got that figured out. But in the meantime, so many craft crashed and so many of the occupants perished. 
So the colonel um, would go with his team to see if there were any survivors. And then if there was a survivor, he would use his telepathic abilities to communicate with the survivors. Is that correct? That's correct. That's correct. And, and when it was possible, he would take them back to the base, the medical facility there, and, and try to patch them up. And sometimes that was possible and sometimes not because their body systems were not like ours. And so finally, they got an exchange uh, physician and uh, scientist there that they had recovered safely from uh, a crash. And he was really instrumental in, in devising the treatments for these occupants that were you know, in, in bad shape and, but needed to eat because they couldn't eat. They were like, Rachel, they couldn't eat our food or drink our liquids, our water. And, and so there was this one who was called Chisky, C-H-I-S-K-Y. Um, he was very instrumental in, in helping save some of the crash victims, as he was with Rachel, too. Now, this again, if this sounds a bit strange to people, the idea mm-hmm. that the colonel was telepathically communicating with these ETs, I'll just direct you to uh, the testimony from Clifford Stone in the Disclosure Project and, and many in interviews afterwards. He had the same function. He used uh, his telepathy and his empathy to communicate for the military with us uh, beings, the extraterrestrial beings that crashed. Yeah. And uh, this was a very difficult job because he would not only know their thoughts, but he would feel their emotions as well. Yes. And they so, did have emotions, too. Did he talk to you about that? No. Uh, the colonel, you mean? Yeah. Uh, no. No, he didn't mention that. Yeah. Well, Cl- yes. So you're right. Clifford uh, said sometimes they were really missing the, their own families or their, their connections back on their own world. Um, they were scared. They had all, a whole range of emotions, and he could feel all of that. He had great empathy for them. So this is a good place to take a little break. Um, so let's do that, and when we come back, we'll continue this fascinating uh, experience that Helen had and, and find out where it went. So this is Ann Gelsheimer on Conscious Evolution Radio, and we'll be right back. This is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. Jungian karmic astrology interweaves your personality, relationship dynamics, life's challenges, and themes with your world. Listen for Astrology, the Theory of Everything, with co-hosts Mary Jo Weavers and Janie McCarthy. They bring together professional astrologers, 
students, enthusiasts, spiritualists, experts, guests, and listeners to exchange valuable ideas and relevant information. Each show will examine and investigate special topics and current events, their meaning, and potential resolutions. We're here Thursdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave. Be visionary. Be extraordinary. Be the change. This is the 7th Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. tuned in to Conscious Evolution Radio, and we love to hear from you. Please send any questions or comments about the show via email to ConsciousEvolutionRadio at gmail.com. Again, that's ConsciousEvolutionRadio at gmail.com. Now, back to this week's program. And welcome back to Conscious Evolution Radio. This is Ann Gelsheimer, and my guest today is Helen Luttrell. So, Helen, you have uh, brought us partway through what is a truly unique and fascinating story. Um, you were sh- uh, the Colonel had shared information with you about how he uh, met Rachel and what was going on at the base and how Rachel was able to survive. What is it that our listeners need to know happened next? I think that would be how Rachel left. Okay. Um, everything was going along all right for a few days after I had had that uh, telepathic uh, download of information from her father. Um, and then one day at work, I got a phone call from Marissa, my daughter. And she had gone home at noon to the apartment, and usually Rachel would be there at that time because she had a big gap between her classes. But Rachel wasn't there. And so Marissa just felt that something was wrong, uh, and she looked around the apartment as best she could because her sight was pretty limited, but she could see certain things, um, objects. And, and she looked, there was nothing left in Rachel's room. Uh, the bed was there and the dresser, but everything was bare. Her clothes were gone. Um, all of her personal little effects that she had gotten together since she was living with Marissa, those were all gone. And Marissa was just in a panic. And so that was when she called me and she said, I don't know what to do. And, and so I, I, I told her, well, I'll, I'll come over, and, and so I did after a while, but I couldn't go get out of work for a couple of hours. So anyway, I got another phone call back from her, and she said, I don't believe this. I looked on the mirror. There was nothing else left in the room except the bare bed and the mattress and the dresser. And she said, but on the mirror was taped a piece of paper, and it said, Marissa, I am sorry to leave you. You have been my best friend. But I have left you a gift. Love, Rachel. And then she realized that she had read that note and she had not been able to read like that before. She had to use a magnifying glass and squint and, and try to make out words and she read that very, very clearly and easily. So... When she called and told me that, I said, you know what it is that she's left you. It was a gift of sight. 
That's amazing. A healing of her sight. Yes, and she didn't see uh, 2020, that's for sure. But uh, she was able to read street signs, and most of the time without her magnifying glass. And it was truly a gift of sight as far as Marissa was concerned. What an amazing gift. I thought so, too. Now, Helen, I know that you also um, uh, try to verify a lot of this stuff, uh, all of these events and, and the presence of the colonel and Rachel at the school. Could you talk to us about what you were able to turn up? And I know you had somebody on insecurity on the base who actually confirmed the colonel's presence, etc. Yes, I did. It was, uh, he was a civilian, and, um, but he was quite highly placed there in the Air Force. And he, had been, he and his wife had been guests out at the ranch that I lived on and rode horses and everything with us. So I called him and I told him what had happened about the note from Rachel and her disappearance. And I said, can you possibly, possibly check on her father? Because he had originally checked on uh, the colonel's presence uh, at an accompanying base across town which was a high-security base also, and that was how come I confirmed what I thought about what Rachel was. So he called his uh, uh, opposite person over at the other base and called me back in a few minutes. He said, well, I can't tell you anything. All of the colonel's records have been pulled. It's like he never was there. But he said, I know he was there. I know he was there because I checked it out for you to begin with a couple months ago. And he said, I, I don't know what to tell you, but the service has pulled him. The Air Force has just pulled him out of all of a sudden and, and taken him someplace, but I have no idea where. And so that was how that ended. Um, and I have never heard anything from the colonel in the meantime. I don't know if he's alive or if he has passed away or if he's living under an assumed name someplace. And uh, I, I'll just let our listeners know in our next interview with Helen, uh, we're going to go into uh, other ways she had of obtaining some information about Rachel and what happened. But we'll leave that for now, uh, basically with the, with the disappearance of both Rachel and the colonel. And I wonder if we could back up and just talk a little bit about those classic men in black who showed up and why they were there. <laughs> Well, yes, that, that's what I called them, but then I found out that was a real name everybody else was calling them, too, as men in black. But um, I ran into them uh, physically. Um, they were the ones who were supplying Rachel with the big jugs of water and uh, the little packages of the green stuff. And uh, they would come periodically to check on Rachel. And whenever they did, my daughter had told me she had to leave the apartment. They were going to be alone with Rachel. And uh, they made my daughter go down to around the pool downstairs, completely out of the apartment building, uh, until they left. And, and so one day I was going up to visit the girls, and they were coming down the stairs. And they were three abreast coming down, and the stairs were wide. But still, they were big, lumpy-looking men. They were just unpleasant-looking, and uh, they, didn't, they didn't appear to 
that they were going to move and let me go up or go by. So I had to flatten myself against the wall in order to let them pass. And they just kind of, one, brushed against me real roughly. And they were wearing tight-fitting black suits and black fedoras. And I know this sounds crazy, but this is how they were dressed. Tasty-looking complexions. And and their clothes smelled musty, like clothes you had put away in a um, plastic bag for a long time or maybe two or three years and then took out. They smell musty, too, but that's how these men did. And no expression on their faces, just just nothing. They're very unpleasant. Yeah, it sounds like, it sounds very unpleasant, kind of like thugs and bad suits. (laughs) Yeah, oh, yes, they were bad. They were... The buttons were, you know, where it was buttoned, it was stretched tight. <laughs> they were bad suits. And you also described the car, the very, and it was an unusual car for the time that they, they would use when they, they came to visit uh, Rachel at the apartment. What was it like? Oh, that. They always used the same one, I think, because the license plate was the same. And also, that had that insignia on, the triangle insignia. Right, with with the the three lines through it. The three lines. But it was an old-fashioned military thing. It was like something you'd see in uh, maybe World War I, um, the the military sedans that the the German people... uh, Oh, the World War II, yes, like in Berlin or something. (laughs) Yes, yes, that's exactly what, what it looked like. And it had the, the big lights out in front and everything, and it was long. It was, it was exactly like that. And the funny thing was that a few, oh, quite a few years ago, um, I was at a car show here where I live, and there was one of those cars exactly like that. So I found the owner, and uh, I don't think he was ever associated, probably even with the military, but, but he had bought it as a used military vehicle. And he wasn't going to tell me where it was that he bought it either. But he did allow me to take some pictures of it, and I have a picture of it in the book, Rachel's Eyes. That is fascinating. So this out-of-place car, these poorly fitting suits, and a total lack of manners. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, very crude. So there was a sense of intimidation around that, too. I know um, Marissa not only gave them their privacy, but she really wasn't comfortable being around them, was she? No, she wasn't. And I could understand once I ran into them that time on the stairs, they felt threatening. There there was a threatening aura about them that they wouldn't hesitate to do anything, anything they wanted to achieve whatever they were going to do. Okay. Now, what was interesting also in the book, you you shared um, some experiences of people other than yourself and Marissa who met Rachel, like your son and Marissa's uh, future husband, I guess, met Rachel as well. Could you you share their impressions of Rachel? Well, her future husband uh, always did say that he thought she was just very strange (laughs) and acted very strange, didn't act like a normal female that age. And um, and this other, is Rachel, not Marissa. <laughs> we'll uh, Rachel, <laughs> yes, not Marissa. Oh my goodness, <laughs> terrible mistake there because they got married after and had a family. <laughs> but yeah, the other person, um, my son actually did go out on a date with her, uh, which 
with Rachel, which was engineered by uh, Marissa. Right, sort of a favor to his sister. I, I think that was it. And he does not remember anything about leaving, uh, after leaving the girl's apartment. And I think how it was uh, that Marissa and her boyfriend, her husband-to-be, had left a little bit earlier, <clears throat> earlier. And my son does not recall anything after he and Rachel leaving the apartment. Now, I am not sure that they did leave the apartment. But he recalls nothing, and he will not talk about this. He's vehement about it. How interesting. So I'm kind of hit. I don't bring him into the picture very often. Yeah, it was interesting reference in the book. But uh, so possibly something more happened, but we really don't know. Now, when you were writing the book, you were actually able to get confirmation eventually from the college that Rachel was a student there, weren't you? Yes. I was. Uh, at first, uh, well, I had contacted them by letter and phone and several times to several different departments, and nobody would acknowledge that she had ever been there. And the registrar's office certainly should have known, and several other ones should have known, too. Oh, but everybody said, no, nope, no record. I don't think she was ever here. There's just no record of her. So I sort of gave it up as you know, impossible. And then within a few months, I suddenly got a letter from the registrar's department that she had, in fact, uh, enrolled in 1972, and it gave the month, and then was granted a leave of absence. And it was signed by a person that I had talked to originally, because the person had sort of a odd name. It was a a lady, but she had a uh, man like Willie or something like that was her real name. And, and so I know that it was the same lady. And I thought that was quite unusual. Apparently, her all of her records had been put into um, a separate place from the other past students there. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, this lady... Uh, whom I think was just about ready to retire. I, I always did think that maybe since she was going to leave, it wasn't going to harm her career if she let me know that that Rachel really had been there. Because sometimes if you're an employee, you don't divulge yeah. any secret information. That's right. I mean, I used to work for a college, and we wouldn't even, at this point, of course, privacy laws are different, but we wouldn't uh, even acknowledge somebody was a student or a client uh, without their permission. So that is really helpful, what she did for you. Yes, it was, and I appreciated it so much. And I noticed in the letter that parts of it were redacted because at that time you were protecting uh, people's identities and that. And I noticed that the name Rachel was spelt different. And, of course, the last name was redacted. Was it the same last name that the colonel had? Because we couldn't see that from reading the book at this point. Yes, that's true. It was the same last name that um, the colonel had, which was kind of foolish to me. <laughs> it was there in one place. Well, I guess I shouldn't have redacted it, but, <laughs> but I did. But throughout the book, I tried to change the names uh, a little bit because of protection for people. 
No, that's a, that, that's a kindness, and this is ten years ago, and um, yeah, that, that that is a kindness. So we're coming up to the last two minutes in the show, and um, I want to let people know that there is going to be a guest web page created for you, where oh. um, your information about your book and your email address will be there. But uh, tell us a little bit about how uh, people could get a signed copy of your book, because that would be very cool. Oh yes. Uh, I'd love to do that for them, too. Uh, you could contact me by email at bookladyhl at aol.com. And that is H is in Helen, L is in Latrosse, my initials. Uh, bookladyhl at aol.com. And if you just had questions uh, about the book, I'd love to answer those. Or if you've had experiences you'd like to talk about, I'm a good listener. I don't have any answers sometimes, but but I'm a good listener. Well, I can vouch for that. We had a wonderful conversation. It was just so great speaking with you. You're very easy to speak with. Helen, thank you so much for your courage in writing this book and coming forward. And, and everybody should think, this is 10 years ago, too. There's more and more information coming out, but it was certainly more challenging 10 years ago. Um, but I so appreciate you taking the time to be on on this episode with me. Oh, and it's been a privilege to be on it, too. I thank you so much. And we will have uh, a part two, and we are going to go through the layers, um, down the rabbit hole, through the looking at glass. It's going to get very, very interesting beyond what we've talked about today. So please join us again. This is Ann Gelsheimer on Conscious Evolution Radio. Thank you for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to Conscious Evolution Radio. Please join Ann Gelsheimer for another great show next Friday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time and 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. We hope to see you next week.